We've gotten off of the last two or three chapters mostly having to deal with the sons of Korah and their rebellion, how the Lord shows Israel he's not done with them, then how the Lord shows Israel that God has chosen uh, chosen Aaron, he has chosen Moses, he has chosen that lineage of Levites to be doing the work of God. Again, the theme of the book of Numbers is obedience versus disobedience. And truly in this chapter, we get a reminder of the wandering that the nation of Israel is in because of their disobedience. God is preparing them on how they need to be dealing with death and dealing with dead bodies. Now, if you're not a soldier, if you're not a first responder, if you don't work in the medical field, uh, because of technology and modern medicine, very rarely do we interact with dead bodies, right? Unless you work at a morgue or something like that, right? But for the nation of Israel, they're in year two of their 40 years of wandering, and there's about two million people. And God has told them, this whole generation is going to pass away before you get into the promised land. So my math is not the best, but according to the calculations I win, that's about 144 dead people every day. Every day, 144 people were going to drop dead because of their disobedience. And what God is preparing them for is, how do you deal with these dead bodies? And a reminder for us, we've gone back and forth with these two scriptures. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And again, for us, we as Christians, we should be ready and more than capable of handling death. The world should be looking to you and I And how do you handle death? How do you handle this departure? We as parents, we shouldn't be shielding our kids or not wanting to talk with our kids with really any topic. Because if we don't have the answers, we know the world definitely doesn't. If we're afraid to give them our answers and God's words answers when it comes to life and death and money and sex and sin, the world will gladly... Tell them everything that the world wants to tell them on death and sex and all these things. So God, He's given the nation of Israel how they should handle death. And we as believers, we should be talking about death. Not that we're going to be dressed in all black next week and have ashes all over us, right? Don't be that Debbie Downer at a kid's birthday party talking about death or anything like that, right? But we should be more than able, more than capable of talking about death and dealing with it when we have to go through that season. Because the numbers don't lie. 10 out of 10 people go through death, right? So, Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Maybe I stumped you with that stat. Numbers 19, verses 1 through 5. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there's no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eliezer the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, 
and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire burning the heifer. And then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water and afterwards he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes with water, bathe in the water, and he shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the, hash, the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept from the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin." So God here in these first two verses commands the nation of Israel to bring a red heifer. That is a red female cow that has never given birth. And now the, this cow, this young right, female cow, had to be without blemish and without defect. A young cow that had never been used to work out in the field. A yoke has never touched it before. It's funny, the Jews, they usually take things to extreme. So some rabbis, they take the law to mean that the red cow could have no more than three hairs that were not red on the cow. So if they're counting, I don't know whose job that is, right? But they start combing through the cow. And if there's more than three hairs that aren't red, all of a sudden, it's not good enough for God's intended purposes. If you're one of those people that's on an emailing list for the end of days and for Bible prophecy, usually there's people looking for the red heifer. Where's the red heifer? Is it in Texas? Is it here? Is it there? And they gather this law with the red heifer and the ashes of the red heifer. This is what's needed to purify a tabernacle or a temple before it can be used by us to honor the Lord. And we know as we've been going through the book of Revelation that there's one last temple to be built by the Antichrist. So there's some people, they're looking for that. They're looking for the red heifer out there. We can pray for you. Don't get obsessed with that. Get obsessed with Jesus. So verse 3, you shall give it to Eliezer the priest that it may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. So we see it's Eliezer, not Aaron, who needed to make this sacrifice. Eliezer, he's Aaron's priest, and he's the second in command within the priesthood. And the reason for this is because he would temporarily be unclean and not allowed to fellowship with the people or in the tabernacle as the high priest would need it to be in the tabernacle working and serving God's people. This being unclean, it's very important for us because anyone who would not deal with their sin in a biblical way was needed to be sent outside the camp. If someone didn't deal with their sin, someone didn't deal with their uncleanness in a biblical way, they would be sent outside the camp. We also know that once a year they would have a scapegoat, which was a picture of the sins of Israel being placed upon this scapegoat. And now this scapegoat would be sent outside the camp, had it to be a perfect animal, had done no wrong, without blemish, and it would be taken outside the camp and be sacrificed out there. Leviticus 24 verse 14 tells us, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. So again, sin, sacrifice, very special sacrifices were made outside the camp. And Jesus, in a New Testament light, Jesus was our scapegoat. You see, all of our sins were placed upon Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was sacrificed outside of the city of Jerusalem. We could turn quickly to Hebrews 13. 
we'll be turning back and forth in Hebrews a lot. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 through 13, here the author talking about how Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system and also better than the Old Testament altar. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 It says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So again, Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp as that picture of all these Old Testament animals that had to be burnt outside the camp. In Mark chapter 15, verse 20, it tells us that after they had mocked Jesus, they took the purple off of him, the scarlet off of him, they put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Isaiah 53 verse 4 tells us that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And finally, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 and 10 tells us, For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Again, this is monumental in our faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't just die. Jesus died taking my place. Jesus died taking my sins upon him. Jesus took my place taking God's wrath that I deserved. Jesus, he died for me. He died for you. He who was perfect and knew no sin became sin for us and was sacrificed outside the camp that we would be able to be cleansed, sanctified, and we would be able to defeat death. We'll see that later on. Back to Numbers 19. It tells us that the red heifer was to be burned, its hide, its flesh, and its blood. This is the only sacrifice that the blood would be burnt and sacrificed instead of the blood being spilled out into the bowls or the pans that we've spoken about. Then the priest, as he's offering this sacrifice outside the camp, would throw in cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. These are the very same elements that were used in the purification process for a leper. In Leviticus 14.4, that's where it tells us the cedar, the cedar wood, the scarlet, and the hyssop were all to be used by the priest when a leper was cleansed. Cedar, it was used to resist disease, rot, and even moths. Some think of the cross that Jesus was crucified on, that even the cross might have been cedar wood. Scarlet is a picture of blood and the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for each and every one of us. This scarlet, it was all throughout the tabernacle on the inside. 
It was all over the priest's robes. On top of the white, they'd have this scarlet thread. And finally, hyssop was used to carry cleansing agents. In Psalm 51, verse 7, David says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Jesus, when he was on the cross, in order to be able to clearly shout out, it is finished, in John 19, 29, takes a mixture of vinegar and sour wine that was given to him on a branch of hyssop. Again, so much of these Old Testament things are written as a picture and shadow of Jesus Christ. And the work of Jesus Christ, how it's able to cleanse us and purify us and prepare us for death. Later on, they would store these ashes of the heifer outside the camp in a clean place. And they were to be mixed with living water, we'll see in a moment, to purify people, to purify things, to purify the temple itself, the tabernacle itself. At the end of verse 9, it says, it is for purifying from sin. They would take the ashes from the mixture of the red heifer, the cedar, the scarlet, the hyssop, and mix it with living water to purify people and things. We need that purification process in our lives. And as we'll see at the end of the chapter, we don't just need it when we get saved, but we need it day in and day out. We need to be purified and cleansed over and over and over again. Right, all of you look very nice, very clean this evening, right? How often should you shower, right? Some people are smiling, some people are looking down. I don't want to ask, right, why they're looking down. But man, every day, right? Twice a day, several times. I guess it depends what culture you're from, right? But we need that cleansing. We need that washing each and every day, depending where you go, depending where you work, depending on the family that you're praying for, that they get saved. We need that purifying even more often, in verse 11, it says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. And again, that's the whole reason why God's bringing this red heifer, these ashes, and this purification process. It's so that they would be able to deal with all the dead bodies dropping. 144 dead bodies on average every single day. This death march that Israel was on because of their disobedience. Again, that's why it's so important for us to be in the habit of obeying Christ as soon as we can. Right? We praise the Lord. It's not like we disobey and now we're on a death march from now till the day we die. But sometimes there's consequences. For David, his sin, his disobedience to God led to his lineage entering a death march. His whole house was filled with death. His whole house was, was filled with strife and battle and carnage because of his lapse in obedience to Christ. What's the decision that you're facing? Whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's with that person you know you shouldn't be talking to, that person that's reaching out to you online, what's your stance? We need to make sure that we obey God because it always comes with a price and a cost. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. How often do we touch dead bodies, right? 
be a little bit of a creeper if it's not your job and you're constantly touching dead bodies. But the context here, again, is for Israel knowing that they'd be daily dealing with these dead bodies. And God wanted to provide a way to purify them on a consistent basis and also a way to protect them from the germs and the decay of these dead bodies just ravaging the whole nation of Israel. There's a reminder for us that in seeing death, it reminds us that this life goes by quickly. I was talking to one pastor and he says, I would rather do a funeral any day over a wedding ceremony. He goes, at a wedding ceremony, you're just a prop up there on stage. Everybody's looking at the groom and the bride. But at a funeral, everybody's listening to every word you have to say. Because we don't know how to deal with death. Unbelievers, they truly don't know how to deal with death. And whenever we go through the process of death with someone we care about, it causes us to reconcile our accounts. It causes us to look at what's important. How's my relationship with my spouse? How's my relationship with my kids? Is my job really that important? Are these little toys, are these little things that important? And I believe because of our world and all of its technology, it's robbed us a a bit from dealing with death on a consistent basis. Instead of dead bodies just being whisked away in cars and then being sent to the morgue and us never, never having to deal with it, death reminds us of very important things. Some of the reading today and yesterday was in Psalm 90 verse 12. And the psalmist says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. As we think about our life, it causes us to gain a heart of wisdom. Instead of just getting caught up in the rat race, instead of getting caught up in covetousness, right? That's one thing I've been thinking about more and more. Social media is such a tool of covetousness. You see someone else on a trip, you see someone else what they're wearing, you see, oh man, they're drinking that coffee. I want that coffee right now, right? It's just a source of covetousness. In Psalm 39, verse 4 and 5, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Just vapor. It passes away. That's the steam on a tea kettle. It just passes away. Our lives come by so quickly. James 4 verse 14 says, Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Our society does so much to hide death. If we're honest as parents, sometimes we hide death from our kids. We replace goldfish, right? We replace pets. Where's grandpa? Where's grandma? Oh, they went on vacation, right? And we try to deal with it later on. We should be dealing with this. We have the answer for this. And not only do we have the answer from this, but Jesus has freed us from death. See, that's the beautiful thing about our sacrifice. Not only has he freed us from sin, but he's freed us from death as well. Again, it's incredible that he frees us from sin, but if he didn't free us from death, I mean, yeah, you're free from sin for these 60 years, 80 years, 100 years, but then what? We could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the importance of Jesus and our sacrifice. The one who was sacrificed on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 15 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, Paul says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Again, death, it's gone. Sin has no power over us. Christ has given us victory over these things. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, it says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plague. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Christian, is this how we see death? Is this the power of Christ that we see over death? That Christ himself is the destruction of the grave. Again, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should have no fear of death. Some of us, we fear the process of of through death, right? But we should have no fear of death. No fear of the other side. We shouldn't be hiding it. We shouldn't be watering it down. It shouldn't be some taboo topic topic that we're afraid to discuss with our family. It's simply a reality of life. And for us as believers, it's our graduation. The only person that should fear death is the person that is not at peace with God. And they should fear death. That's one of the realities of death. That's why it should be a reality in our life. Are you ready to be face to face with the creator of heaven and earth that knows every single one of our actions, but not just our actions, our heart and determination behind those actions? Are you ready for that? Am I ready for that? Is my family ready for that? My friends, my coworkers. That's why we shouldn't be afraid of death. We should be ready to see Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, our scapegoat, was sacrificed outside the city to take our sins and conquer death itself. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. Now verse 12, he says, He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day, And on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. In the past, as we've gone through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we've spoken of the differences between ceremonially unclean versus being in sin. Just because you're ceremonially unclean doesn't mean that you're in sin. But now if you're not obedient to what God's Word has to say and how to be cleansed, now you're in sin. Being ceremonially unclean just meant that fellowship with God and with God's people had to be placed on pause because you had to be quarantined until you were cleaned and restored. The great danger happens when we are unclean and then refuse to obey God's word. This is when the great danger happens. When we are unclean and we refuse to obey God and what he identifies as unclean. Does this sound familiar whatsoever? 
Many Christians today say, oh, that's not really unclean. That's just Old Testament unclean. We're in New Testament, right? This is 2022. That's not unclean anymore. That's when we come into great danger. The other great danger is when we refuse to obey God in his plan and his order in how we can be restored and how we can be made clean once again. God, he's given us the way. He says, hey, you're unclean. I want to make you clean. This is how you do it. But so often in our pride, we try to go through any other route we can than the Word of God because it's a humbling process. It's a humbling process. David Guzik speaking on if he does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off. He says, one who was unclean needed purification and could not ignore their condition, but was still part of the nation unless... They refused to correct their unclean condition. And this is very similar to the church today. The person that refuses to obey God was not only cut off from fellowship with God and his people, but if they doubled down on their pride, then then they were to be cut off and no longer allowed to be identified with the nation of Israel. This happens in churches today. We can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, he speaks on this. It's one thing to realize we're unclean. We have all sinned and fallen short. We're all dealing with our own difficulties and temptations, our shortcomings. But when it's brought to our attention, how do we respond? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Family, are we being obedient to God's word? It's saying that if someone is claiming that they are a Christian and they're living a habitual lifestyle of sexual immorality, you shouldn't even eat with them. Covetousness, idolater, reviler, drunkard, extortioner. No fellowship with them. And it's very similar to what the nation of Israel had to go through. It's one thing for someone to realize that they're unclean. It's a whole nother step for them to double down saying, I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to continue to live this way. God's word says now they had to be excommunicated and sent outside of the camp. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be purified. There's only one way to be made clean. And there's only one way to have our sins covered. It's in and through Jesus Christ. It's in and through his word. And it always comes down to our pride having to be humbled and put to the side. That's the only way. That's the only way we can come to Christ. That's the only way we can be cleansed. In John 13, we get an interesting analogy that Jesus gives us. He acts it out with his disciples, and Peter, as usual, puts his foot in his mouth, right? John chapter 13, 
Because of all the disciples' pride, none of them are willing to take on the role of a servant and wash the different disciples' feet. They're all prideful. We know the disciples' favorite topic was who is the best disciple, right? And there in John 13, verse 5, it says, After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Again, family, if we are not willing to humble ourselves, if we're like Peter and saying, I know this is unclean, but I'm unwilling to come under the lordship and authority of Jesus and his word, we can't have fellowship with Jesus. We need to constantly come to him. First and foremost, receiving that first bath, right? It's funny. Peter says, okay, don't wash my feet. He goes from that to saying, all right, Jesus, give me a bubble bath, right? Just wash me completely. But Jesus says, hey, you've had that first bathing. You just need to continually come to me and have your feet washed. What that tells us is once we're saved, the Holy Spirit has washed us and cleansed us. However, we need to come back to Jesus Christ on a consistent basis to have him wash off what we've picked up from walking around this world. And if we're honest, we pick up a lot more than we're allowing to say, right? The things we pick up from television, from this world, the things we pick up from co-workers and people at school, unsafe friends and family members. We pick up a lot of filth from this world. Sometimes me, maybe not you guys, I try to integrate it into my Christianity, right? Hey, this is okay. And whenever we come back to Christ, whenever we come back to his authority, our pride just gets broken. And we say, all right, Lord, this is completely sinful. This has no business being with you. Lord, would you cleanse me once again? Lord, I'm sorry. Jesus, I come back to you. Lord, would you please cleanse me? I always think of babies. Babies, they often come to their parents. Sometimes they don't come to their parents when they're messy, right? What's the the sign for mom, dad, come and clean me? They just go like this, right? They may have the mess all over them, but they just put their hands up, right? And so often that's what we need to do. We just need to surrender and come to our Father and say, Father, cleanse me. Father, clean me. But what happens to the baby that doesn't come to their mom or dad when they're dirty, right? When they have that chocolate on them or the other chocolate on them, right? (laughs) Or the food. What happens? Does it just stay on them? As every minute goes, that mess just continues to move further and further. Now it's on them. It's on their siblings. It's on the crib. It's on the bed. It gets everywhere. That's why we need to humble ourselves sooner and sooner, quicker and quicker, coming to our Father and saying, Father, I will that you cleanse me. Would you cleanse me? Would you heal me? Lord, I can realize I am unclean right now. I've been with these coworkers. Lord, I've been here. I've been there. Lord, would you clean me right now? We need to constantly be coming to Christ, asking, Lord, would you cleanse me once again? 
The problem in verse 13 is not only would the person be defiled, but if they chose to not purify themselves, it tells us that then they would defile the tabernacle of the Lord. Not only was their pride hurting them, but it would hurt the fellowship for everyone within the tabernacle. And this is a great call to holiness. But for us today, we're called to holiness as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, Paul tells the church of Corinth, the Holy Spirit's telling us tonight, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Again, that's our problem today. When we choose to double down and stay unclean, we're defiling our temple. We're defiling the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we want the victory over sin that we gain through the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if we want the victory over death that Jesus offers to us, then we need to accept the price that he has paid for our lives. You don't have your cake and eat it too in this Christianity thing. Either you're freed from sin and you're freed from death and now you no longer belong to yourself or you belong to yourself, but you're not freed from sin and you're not freed from death. We no longer belong to ourselves. We should constantly be asking and searching ourselves saying, Lord, am I defiling the temple which you have purchased? God, my body is not my own. My life is not my own. Lord, my will is not my own. Lord, my will is to do the will of my Father who sent me. That's what Jesus said. Being our trailblazer, being our leader in the way we should be living. Our will is no longer our own. We should be asking, Lord, what would you have me to do? Verse 14 through 16, it says, This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. Again, remember, 144 bodies dropping every day. This was going to happen more often than not. If you were near a dead body, you needed to quarantine for seven days. It also tells us if, if you had a bowl of chips and dip out, if you had your pita and hummus out or your quail and manna outside just in a bowl, it wasn't sealed in the Tupperware, then that would be considered unclean as well. You'd have to toss that. You'd have to get rid of it. It's also interesting because where was the nation of Israel coming from? They were coming out of Egypt. And here God is telling them not to be messing with dead bodies. And in fact, the moment they touch a dead body, they got to deal with it, bury it, and then go and cleanse themselves for seven days. Egypt, a nation obsessed with working with dead bodies. A nation obsessed with preparing these dead bodies for the afterlife. God is allowing these rules and regulations created by God to honor him to keep Israel safe, first and foremost, from diseases and germs. And also to keep them from acting like Egyptians when it comes to death. 
So much of walking in the Spirit is not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So often just being obedient to God and His Word and loving God's people and being with God's people and serving God's people protects us from acting like Egyptians. Again, it's just the natural thing that God creates for us. One question might be is, why is death considered unclean? Right? It's just a natural process of life. Why is death considered unclean? Because it's a constant reminder to us of sin. It's a reminder to us. You see, if sin never entered this world, Adam and Eve, they could be serving in Kittle's ministry right now. If sin never entered this world, maybe they'd be the greeters this tonight, right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, it tells us that God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Finally, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us what? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, death is a reminder of our sin. It reminds us that sin is unclean. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. Sin breaks our fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And that's why God wanted the nation of Israel to deal with death as it is, which is unclean. It's something that constantly reminds us of what the end of sin looks like. Sometimes you have bad days, right? Sometimes you have difficult days. You have a bad day at work. You have a bad day in traffic. Should we just get angry? No, I think we should have a a greater desire for heaven. We should have a greater reminder. Lord, this is all happening because of sin. This is all happening because of our disobedience to you. Verse 17 through 19, it tells us, And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person now takes hyssop, dips it in the water, sprinkles it on the tent, and on all the vessels, and on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in the water, and at evening he shall be clean. So if someone dies in your tent, you would need a clean person to come in, cleanse your tent, Cleanse your Tupperwares or your bowls, whatever else was out, right, around the dead body. And then cleanse you and cleanse themselves at the end of this. The ashes of this substitutionary sacrifice made outside the camp, along with the hyssop, scarlet, and cedar that would be thrown in the fire, were to be mixed with living water. Living water is just water that's running. Water from a a creek, a river, a waterfall, water that is moving. They would take this mixture of ashes and water, mix it, and then with the hyssop, they would cleanse the unclean person or things. And for us, how can we be cleansed? It's through the power of Jesus Christ, the mixture of His Word, and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And we need these three things in order to be cleansed from sin. In, num- in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 through 14, it tells us, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If a red cow and a fire and ashes and water were able to cleanse a person, how much more the life and death of Jesus Christ has the power to cleanse us? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, for the husband that he would sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. This is how Christ cleanses his church. This is how husbands are to treat their wives. In Psalm 119 verse 9, it tells us, How can a young man cleanse his way? It's by taking heed according to your word. The word of God cleanses us. Finally, John chapter 7 verse 38 and 39. Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Oftentimes Christians just say, I I can't defeat this sin. I can't get over it. I just can't do it. I try, I try, and I can't get over it. Are we really fully giving ourselves to Jesus Christ? Are we wholly giving ourselves to the Word of God? Are we fully giving our lives to the Holy Spirit. Are we following that scripture in Corinthians, right? My life is not my own. My life is now hid with Christ on high because he has purchased me. And again, we need to be cleansed on a daily basis. That's why it's so important for us to be going through the word of God on a constant basis. Day in, day and night. Verse 20, But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself... That person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. Again, the option is out there for everyone. The option to be made clean and made whole was out there for everyone. But there are people in their pride who say either I'm not really that unclean or I don't want to go through that process. And if they double down on it, they would have to be sent outside of the assembly, outside of the nation of Israel. And again, you'd be kicked out into the wilderness, into the desert. It's not like you just go to another church or you go back to your house with air conditioning. No, you were kicked out of the camp, out of the protection of the other two million people. And now you were in the wilderness all by yourself. Again, that's why we need to come and ask the Lord to cleanse us. We need to come and ask to be cleaned. Because what happens if you don't clean yourself, right? What happens to a person if they don't shower one day? And then they don't shower for a week. And they don't shower for a month, right? God forbid, they don't shower for a year. What happens? It just continues to progress. It only gets worse and worse. The stench gets worse and worse. It begins to affect their body. It begins to affect the people around them. And the same is true for our sins. For the things that we pick up from this world that get us dirty. 
If we don't bring them under the lordship of Christ, if we don't bring them under the lordship of the word of God and the Holy Spirit, it only corrupts us. It only makes things worse and worse and worse. Verse 21 and 22, it shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. We see that the person that wants to be cleansed, they need someone else to help them. Again, that's why self-help within Christianity is such a lie. Such a tool and vice of the enemy. There's no self-help here. There's no self-cleansing. It's having to humble yourself and ask someone else, hey, I need you to get the water, get the hyssop, come and clean me, clean my tent, clean my Tupperwares. I can't believe I left the quail and, and manna out again, right? I need you to come and cleanse me. Same thing we need to do. We need to come under the lordship of Jesus We need to come and confess our sins one to another, that the Lord would hear us and work in us, that we'd have that added accountability. And this also reveals to us that the person helping others would have to be cleansed themselves. We have to be careful with that. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm the one helping everybody else. I don't need to be cleaned. No, we need to be cleansed as well. Such a danger for us when we think we don't need any help. And that can creep into us as a church. That can creep into us as pastors and leaders. Where Everybody else needs cleansing, but I don't really need cleansing. No, each and every one of us need to constantly be cleansed, coming to Christ, coming to others. One final thing here. David Guzik says, Uncleanness was easily transmitted, but cleanness had to be deliberately sought out. It's so true in our lives. Being cleansed from your sin, being forgiven of your sin, doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. We think time heals all things. Everyone have, anyone ever hear that before, right? Time heals all things. No. There's only one way to be cleansed from our sins. Only one way to be cleansed from our dirtiness. It's by being, deliberately, by being deliberate and seeking to be cleansed. It's being deliberate, coming, praying, seeking the Lord, confessing your sins, and getting right with Him. If not, your uncleanness will be transmitted easily to the people you love, to the people you care about. That's why a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's why we need to cut off every root of bitterness and sin which so easily ensnares us. Because if we leave just a little bit out, it'll plague the whole church. It'll plague our whole families. It'll plague the whole school, your whole place of work. Your whole livelihood will be destroyed if you don't deal with that small bit of being unclean. So again, family, what is all of this about? It's just pictures of Jesus, how Jesus was sacrificed for us outside the camp, how he has come to free us from uncleanliness and also from death itself. The question is, are we deliberate? Have we been deliberate about seeking Jesus to restore us and cleanse us. That's all I do. Lord, if it's your will, Lord, cleanse me. Heal me.